0: Welcome to Licking the Whisk, I'm Jenna Holliday and this is the podcast about food, farming and climate change. This week my fellow whisk licker Ruth and I discuss the relationship between the sustainability of farming and the way that farms are worked, from the unpaid household labour to migrant workers and agrotech. We also talk about some of the more societal barriers to farming and farm work before drifting off somewhat into a conversation about COVID and the future. We hope you enjoy. So today we're going to talk about mm, like the labor on farms, mm. farm labor, and I was just looking back, and we did um, our last podcast in July. No way. Who knows where the time? Wow, goes. crikey! Where did it really?
1: go? Yeah. July. Wow. Well. Well, welcome to the new year. Welcome to 2021, everybody. And we're still <clears throat> having a lovely time. We're still growing food on the farm and Jenna's still
0: eating food and looking very, very well on it. That's so, my yeah. primary, that's my primary function in, ter- <laughs> in terms of our agricultural system. <laughs> well, there's no point having, you know,
1: no point <laughs> in us growing it all if somebody isn't going to eat it.
0: I was looking at the timing of the last podcast In the last podcast we were talking about um covid so covid had been around a couple of months but we were kind of fully experiencing it i suppose mm. um, it was new and fresh and exciting <laughs> now it was to be... as my sister recently described it it felt like a snow day it felt mm. like a long snow day where everyone yeah. was kind of it together and it's
1: yeah suddenly getting into macrame and <laughs> building Bread badly and that sort of thing and look at my terrible craft project exactly. but hey, it's not about the output now we're just so we were there
0: we were there and brexit was looming and we were talking about the um we were talking a little bit about labor maybe it was an earlier one but we talked about kind of labor in terms of the covid effect yeah. on the seasonal labor last year mm. i think that was talking,
1: the first one we did wasn't
0: it maybe that was the second one actually
1: anyway it all ties in it's all
0: it all ties in but now we're talking about it a little bit further down the line in the Brexit space so now we're looking at labour so yeah Covid obviously a load of uh, migrant workers had to leave or couldn't come in and then Brexit we now have this new pilot I don't know maybe it's gone through the pilot stage now the seasonal agricultural workers scheme um but still a shortfall so now we're looking mm. at neighbour through brexit but i did think actually the next one we could do because we've today coming from the 20th of january there's been uh news of the the, the mps are, are voting and voting for pretty horrific standards in terms of food standards Yeah. in terms of their trade agreements, right? So I think yes. next, the next one we could talk about the differing food standards and what that means in the trade, mm. the world of trade. So in terms of our um, looking at labour on the farm, um, yeah. what, what does like labour look like on a farm, on a holding, kind of f- the difference from a small holding to a large monocrop farm? yeah and at what point does it shift from one to the other
1: yes i mean it's i was just looking at the the bare figures for um you know who works on farms in this country and and the figures i've got is that it's one and a half percent of the overall um working population i guess it is yeah workforce one and a half percent of the overall workforce are working in agriculture so um, that's not just farmers obviously that's farm workers and I'm not sure f- how far out from just being a farm worker um, that workforce is so it's not a lot is it um, and it's only three, three hundred 346,000 people in the whole country employed in agriculture and you know there's millions of us so it's really small and I've also got a figure of um hundred self self-employed farmers so i guess that's yeah um farms run by people or you know families maybe rather than uh great big uh conglomerations i don't know but so there's really small numbers of people isn't there, employed in basically producing our food in this country it's tiny. Because they've gone down the route of um, mechanisation, and it's one of those industries where to get rid of the workforce has been seen as, you know, as the modern way to go. We'll get rid of the workforce and replace it with machinery, and replace it with um, chemical inputs. Basically, we'll replace it with fossil fuels. Replace the workforce with fossil fuels, which have been subsidised through, you know, red diesel, and yeah, just all of the fact that fossil fuel products cost a lot less than employing people um but yeah that does mean that then you're 100 reliant on fossil fuel inputs and very expensive machinery and because you're using machinery and this machinery is very very expensive you're going to tend to go for you know one or two crops that you can either get a contractor because a lot of farming is really done by contractors it's not the farmer has or, you know, all the equipment to even just sort of harvest, um, you know, a grain crop, they'll get a contractor in to do it. So they may do some of their sort of less specialized tractor work on the farm, but for bigger jobs, harvesting or drilling or, you know, all kinds of things, they'll be buying in the labor to do that or buying, you know, buying in the, the contract labor to do that, which is, you know, which just keeps pushing everything to get bigger. You want, you need a bigger field because you've got bigger machinery and then you're Um, You know, so your inputs can be distributed more efficiently, shall we say, if you've got fewer turns on the headland with the tractor, it all kind of makes everything cheaper and because the output, the price gain for the output is so driven down by this narrow neck of like who, who pays and agricultural output is always or nearly always a buyer's market, isn't it? Because by the time I've grown my parsnips or whatever it is, even if I'm on a contract with a supermarket, by the time they're grown, they know I don't have any other way of selling them. You know, I can't just sort of put them in a box and say, okay, I'm not going to sell them until next year when the price is better because, you know, there are perishable goods just like all other um, agricultural outputs. So on bigger farms, it's been this drive for fewer people, more machinery, more monocropping, as you said. Um, So to go in the other direction, which is what we as agroecological farmers, smaller farmers, small mixed farmers are doing, has been really pushing against what's been promoted Mm. as good agriculture um, in this country for, you know, 30, 50, I don't know, maybe, Far more years than that, basically post war. So it's that kind of tension between, um, as ever, kind of, it's expensive to employ people. Uh, but if you're going to run a small farm and have a productive output from it, like the farm we have here, you need more people um, planting, harvesting, maintaining if you're going to have complexity. If you have a monocrop, you can use big machinery. If you're having complexity, like we have here, or you know other organic um, farms do, where you have mixed cropping and lots of different things going on, you need people to run that system. It's obviously more expensive, uh, and there's you know there's no way of getting around that. But that's partly to do with how food's been valued or not valued.
0: So I was, reading, I was reading something interesting um, about the gender divide on, on farms. There was a, the Farm Structure Survey in 2016. They haven't released or published one since then, but there was one in 2016. And mm. um, unsurprisingly, most managers and holders are male and often the same person, like around 80 to 85 percent, like huge
1: significant
0: numbers Mm. um but when you go into the smaller farms so firstly the majority of family workforce are female so family workforce is a little bit of a um shorthand for free unpaid labor right yeah Um, and and this and it's it's a more significant phenomenon on smaller farms so what you're describing is you know this the, the 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 smaller scale agriculture essentially only works if a significant amount of labor comes from unpaid labor and that is predominantly in the uk from female labor and it's female part-time labor yeah um so you know looking after the kids looking after the household and then also feeding the livestock doing some harvesting doing planting at busy times whatever Mm. um whereas when you get to the bigger farming infrastructure you get like you say more uh, mechanization and predominantly you get men who are being paid
1: it's true though isn't it and you know there's definitely a barrier there as you know in you know all the sort of stem um professions of you know technology machinery engineering all those sorts of things are seen as well they are male dominated and so then of course that perpetuates because it's much it's much harder to be it if you don't see it um
0: well, exactly, yeah, and and that's the thing. I think you well, well, we know that there's more men than women in STEM. It's like seventy five percent of STEM is made up of men and twenty five percent is women, and that decreases the more you know, the higher up the ranks you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, once you go into a mechanisation space, you are more likely to get male workers than you are female workers, and that's something that hasn't massively changed. It is changing, but it's not massively yeah. changing. And and it's slightly reinforced by the STEM meaning that the the, the kind of gendered element of STEM meaning that, that the design is also designed by men. So you mm-hmm. have this kind of self perpetuating scenario yeah. where tech is designed by men for men, which they find it know.
1: easier to use. Yeah. No. I mean, I've had right, scenarios yeah. here um, when when we have our you know women's uh, farm working weekends where. You know quite a few of the people who come are coming from smaller farms than this and and there may be you know they haven't been to agriculture or whatever. they've come from another another background perhaps and they've started off working on quite small farms you know market gardens or what have you and um, so I do just sort of like little have a go on the tractor sessions just to kind of like almost just to kind of like you've done it now you see it's not that difficult (laughs) but you know sometimes I'll realize that um, because I operate quite old machinery that I have to once I've shown them how it all works I have to get back on the track to, to release the handbrake for them because the handbrake is quite tough or even the case of sitting on the on the seat they can't reach the clutch without standing up you know I just kind of sort of farmer shaped I'm quite tall and quite Wide and strong and you know um but yeah like I say it's not it's not really designed and then that becomes another barrier and 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 i hear so often the thing about uh you know sort of if women do go and have a go at this you know or, or go and work on a more mechanized farm they have they've got this whole sort of psychological thing of like okay so now i I'm going to be asked to to do some mechanized work now here I am representing the whole of womanhood operating machinery and I have to either appear competent or I have to if I make a mistake it's you know it's because I'm female whereas there's none of that kind of baggage that comes with a guy
0: In the, in the um, what, where where mechanisation isn't possible because it's not possible in all sectors, is it? With for all for all types of farming. Um, so one of the other things that happens in the larger farms is that you shift over to buying in your labour, and that's primarily mm. through seasonal migrant labour, right? So fruit fruit picking is a classic one where you're bringing in yeah. seasonal migrant labour, and I understand this year. <laughs> The farming community has identified a need for 70,000 workers. Um, yeah, yeah. And the seasonal worker scheme is provides for 30,000 migrant workers to come okay. from inside and outside of the EU for six months. So, right. I mean, I'm no mathematician, Ruth, but I... <laughs> I've that's seen, less than half isn't it yeah i've seen a discrepancy so so there's good there's yeah. going to be another push isn't there for for that for that kind of recruiting as we saw last year there's going to be another push for yeah. recruiting yeah so i mean i didn't it, really i was going to say what is it about the labor like what is it about the dynamics of migrant labor that is so key to the work because I mean, I've, we've spoken about it a little bit before. It's not that it is unskilled, is it?
1: It's, no, it's not the well, quite the reverse. I mean, that's why, you know, that's why farmers are so keen to get these people in from overseas. It's because those people um, come from a culture of land and field work. They've um, grown, well, not necessarily grown up doing it, but that's what they started doing you know at a young age and they understood and learned the need for speed and also skill so it's, it's one thing to be able to pick something very very quickly and chuck it in a box but obviously you have to bear in mind that you're buying you're picking it for a market and particularly the very exacting um, supermarket market it's not only got to be fast it's got to be perfect as well it's you know it's got to not be bruised not be damaged it's got to be just at the right stage of brightness or or what have you so you know it is incredibly skilled work and um yeah so although certainly you could say wouldn't it be great if um you know more of the UK population could could do that kind of work or have access to it in summer instances you know if if we want uh, more people employed which clearly we do um but it's not that simple you know if somebody Uh, decided that they wanted to become a you know vegetable an itinerant vegetable harvester and of course you've got the the you know the thing of like this this work happens intensely on one farm and then that work is done and then you have to go to another farm and work intensively there and then you move on and that's not conducive to a settled lifestyle it's certainly not conducive to family life or any of those things so you know we've always had or to my knowledge, we've always had itinerant labour working on farms, even when farms were quite small. But it would tend to be, you know, sort of um, even indigenous itinerant people travelling around and doing, you know, hot picking or helping with various harvests. There was that culture of doing that. Now, they very few of the UK population do that, um, but so people come from come from mainly Eastern Europe, not. Exclusively, But they're, they're still doing that same sort of culture of mo- mobile work, big chunks of work, whether it's planting or harvesting in on a farm, and then they'll move on somewhere else. So, yes, it would be great to have more settled agricultural work. And I think we could certainly provide an awful lot more if we did farming in a different way. But um, I don't see how we're ever going to get away completely from this need of intensive um intensive kind of dollops of work on farms which then I mean I even get it here but obviously it's on a much smaller scale and I might just sort of call in a few friends or or what have you to help but you know if you need a hundred people on your farm to harvest your asparagus or your um, strawberries or what have you 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 can't just sort of draw from um, you know the local population because um, it just doesn't work, you know. There aren't people who, who normally have a job and then suddenly you go, "Oh yes, I can stop doing what I'm doing and, uh, and come and help you harvest your asparagus."
0: It's just it's just not it's not how it works, basically. So it's interesting um, that there's that, that as as I understand it, the the kind of thinking behind um, having such a low seasonal agricultural worker limit is that it's going to encourage mechanization, but as we've just discussed, mechanization doesn't work in all sectors or the actual tech isn't at the right level or affordable mm. enough or so on.
1: Yeah, but Well, often it's mechanization that still needs human input, you know, so you can have, uh, you know, quite large harvesting machines of, of, of a crop, but you still need, there is an element of human interaction needed there, whether it's, you know, somebody deciding whether or not this cabbage is right to cut today or whether that'll be next week's cabbage you know and and obviously there's there's a chance that you could automate that somehow and that's i know that's another strand of conversation we could have but actually a human being making those sorts of judgments is far more um you know far more feasible really Mm.
0: Uh, and in places like canada they have made the decision to whilst mechanizing or increasing increasing mechanization they've made the decision to it, it, essentially continue employing migrant workers but in the jobs that are related to mechanization so they haven't they haven't kind of factored in this new shortfall where magically forty thousand national workers suddenly suddenly join in they've kind of recognized that 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 now is a stream of, of labor that comes from yeah from the outside in. When you were saying about itinerant, um, though, sorry, or indigenous um, mi- migrant labour, I was thinking about that because because that was kind of partly <clears throat> partly the way that it did work before kind of people drifted into maybe more temporary or service or service work or education so on. There was more access decades ago to casual labour to mm. being a itinerant seasonal in, internal migrant labourer following the work essentially by season and then yeah know, in, in the off season doing something else um
1: yeah absolutely and- you'd have people in the local village or local town who you know had been doing what a potato picking or something you know since since they they were young and they and and so they you know they decided that you know the whole of their august was working on local farms doing that for some extra pocket money or 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 what have you or you know it was just part of their work schedule of the year but it's um it's much more difficult now to there isn't really a sort of um an employment uh category that's called casual labor now so you either have to be um paying people on a PAY P-A-Y-E basis and set all that up, even if in technically, even if you just want them for a day or uh, these people already have to be self-employed, registered self-employed. And then, you know, they may just come and you sort of contract them to do a week for you. But then of course it's like, well, if you've got somebody local who is self-employed in that kind of area of work, when you want them, everyone else wants them, you know, it's, that sort of scenario, which is kind of a bit like contracting, but it's you know a different sort of a different sort of work. So it would be nice if we could have some um, useful system like that, just so that you know maybe even you know just younger people, students in their summer holidays, could do that kind of work, and it becomes a habit of theirs, whether sort of full time, part time. That's going to take time, isn't it? It's not just going to happen this year. As we have some sort of intense drive to send all our youth out to the fields, like I don't know, I can imagine the poster, <laughs> sort of like quasi 1940s sort of "your farmers need you" kind of thing. Um, I can't, yeah. I mean, there was a bit of that, wasn't there? Last last year, with uh, you know, mobilising the land army and and lots of people. We're we're pretty keen, like a a reasonable thing to do and to even want to do, but of course the reality is slightly different, um, maybe to what a lot of people were expecting in terms of the work required, the accuracy of work required, the accommodation that they were going to be staying in, you know, it's not, it's not quite as, uh, you know, quite as the rural bliss that it might be painted as. And that's another, you know, another point to discuss is like, what kind of work are we creating on our farms? You know, what, why why are we creating work that so many people really don't want to do? You know, like you say, this sort have of drifted off into um, service industries and, you know, retail or hospitality or what have you, which is not an easy ride by any means, but um, compared with sort of really hard at it Um, field labour, which can obviously be either very hot, very cold, very dirty, very monotonous, very very repetitive, hard on your body, If if it's done that way, then quite understandably that not a lot of people want to do that. So why are we designing, you know, growing systems that require people to do that? It doesn't really, doesn't make sense, does
0: it? The growing systems that dominate are those that are less pleasant to work in as a labourer. Is what is what I'm hearing. Um, those larger growing systems where you would need no. to be buying in seasonal labour. It's going to be the type of work that is going to be monotonous, backbreaking, skilled. Mm. So you have to still have yeah. attention to detail. You have to know what you're doing. It, you're going to be held accountable to it. You're probably going to be paid somewhere. Oh yes, along you will the line, be paid on the basis to of it
1: skill and speed and people will do it because it's just for a short block of work and if you're coming from an eastern european country and you know you're thinking okay i'm gonna have to work like a demon for three months it's not going to be great i mean i might have some nice times but there's you know it's just a short block of work and then i can either go home or i can go and do something else and i've got this big watch of money to go and do something else with um you it, it would be quite unusual, I think, to find that many people who are prepared to work at that relentless rate all year round, um, or even, you know, sort of nine months of the year, just as their regular job. It was, you know, you'd have to have an army of superheroes. (laughs) Um, You know, so if we want to make farm work, farming, growing good food an attractive, um, you know, career proposition, We've got to change that, I think.
0: Is the shift that is the shift though, like slightly reselling or you know, kind of repackaging the idea of what agricultural work is? Mm, so kind that's of,
1: definitely part of it, isn't it? That it's you know, it has certain kind of um tropes associated yeah. with it. Um, I think I've spoken about this before about this whole idea that farming has to be 24-7 you know that once you're a farmer then you're just basically stuck on your farm and you can only do that for the rest of your life and that's not really a very attractive prospect to a lot of people and it's like no it doesn't have to be like that but it you know we as farmers have even kind of bought into that culture because it makes us sound all kind of like gnarly and kind of you know superheroes and all the rest of it um but it's, it's sort of, you know, you have you kind of back yourself into a corner in that way because then a lot of people would go, well, I don't want to work 24-7 really, really hard and, um, and not make very much money. No, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. Um, so, yeah, we do have to kind of not just repackage the image of it but actually redo the actuality of it so that you know, it becomes something that people... Um, people want to do they can you know they are attracted to sort of elements of it of the you know working outdoors and working with living things and producing food you know there's lots of really really good things about it but the way that it's operated at the moment um, there are quite a few things that would put an awful lot of people off too
0: that's so like,
1: how do we how do we change that
0: Yeah, and I think that's, I suppose that is, that's why we kind of come back to the barriers because of course you can go to agricultural college and you can learn your trade or you can, you know, get apprenticeships or do, you know, like be interns on your farm for a year Mm. or six months. Those kind of things are all there and possible. And then there are those jobs where you are running a, you know, maybe like a communities network system or working for, um, a bigger kind of organization mm-hmm. network organization or association or you're working for one of the bigger farms that has that kind of ag- agroecological approach to things those things yeah. all exist but they are not the that's not the mainstay of farming at the moment that's not where the 346,000 people are currently working mm-hmm. <laughs> it, really and I suppose yeah. that's the difference so so you're kind of asking and I suppose this is I you know a lot like the not-for-profit charity sector as well you're asking still quite a lot from people who want to go into that sector because it is not going to give you a huge amount of rewards you are going to have to work fairly hard and it is slim pickings but if you are part of that continued pioneer body then Mm. you can start to shift the change so there has to be there has to be a bit of passion around it doesn't there oh
1: for sure there's
0: not that kind of easy pathway in but at the same time But yeah then that that's
1: also the whole thing of like revaluing food and putting it back at the sort of center of what we do and what we are because I mean obviously we're made of it aren't we you know it's something we interact with three times a day Um, but it's just it doesn't come up in sort of political conversations it's kind of like the sandwiches arrive in between the political conversations don't they you know if you go to a you know sort of political round table or what have you, that the food is incidental to the meeting, even if you're having a meeting about food. And it's it's that sort of disconnect of like, oh hang on a minute, this is what I'm made of. You know, where's it come from? Who grew it? Who shipped it? Who processed it? Who you know worked with it, but it's just so taken for granted and not not valued. And um,
0: even at school I remember we spoke about And I don't know if this has changed because I don't have school-aged children or even children, in Mm fact, (laughs) any age children. But we spoke about where, um, oh, what was it? Plantain. I think the teacher brought in a plantain and Mm -hmm. talked about. So I kind of had this idea of plantain and where it came from, and and yeah, we didn't talk about (laughs) where the food we ate at lunchtime game from, I don't think I had any concept of how far away that had come from, what it would how processed it was, how many systems it had gone through, how far away it come from, many of those things. Um, so even the idea of farming, and I lived in a fairly rural space, but hmm. farming felt like a foreign thing. That, yeah, totally, that totally. Like it's odd even. No, very it
1: much is, so. Very much so. Because I mean, you have this idea that oh, it's great to get um city children out into the countryside to see where their food come from comes from and there's that whole kind of like you know sort of idea that then they're shocked that they find out that milk comes from a cow you know that that's a sort of like scenario that's often painted but it's it's very much often the same for kids who grow up in rural areas you know they unless they're actually living on a farm or right next to a farm they they're parents are still driving to the supermarket in the local town buying food from there bringing it back to the house you know apart from the fact that there's more fields around them you know maybe with cows in and maybe with farmers driving tractors around but there's still not really that necessarily that connection between what is happening right on their doorstep and the food that ends up on their table it's it's very often completely disconnected so yeah it's um you know maybe in some ways in the in some cities if you've got allotments there or you know community growing um spaces potentially there's more connection for some of those children with food and where it comes from than there is kids gr- growing up in um you know sort of areas where there's big agribusiness going on all they see is there's like big tractors driving past no concept of what they're doing um so yeah it's um
0: Yeah, I'd agree. I'd I'd say actually, you're right that the probably the one thing I did have any concept of was the milk came from cows because the main farming, as far as I was concerned, farming was basically livestock because I Mm. I didn't, I don't think I recognised the arable stuff. And I don't even think I, I don't even think I saw the fruit picking that we did in the summertime, you know, when you pick your own. I didn't Mm. see that as farming. I don't think either. And I think you know, I'm sure that there has been some shifts. You know, there are you know, there's give things that have kind of come, things that have gone in education. But um, yeah, like you say, you know, bringing that down into just that space of understanding what we're eating from a young age and where it's come from, and you know, not wanting to make your dinner too heavy for your seven-year-old. But what kind of political economic? Yeah, interactions
1: there are in that it's such a tool for education isn't it in terms you know you've got all your science there you've got your maths there you've got all your you know yeah your politics your geography it's it's just everything really so um yeah I'm surprised in a way that it's not used more but maybe it's because of it it is quite politically loaded because then once you start asking where you know where's the coffee come from or where's the soil come from and and all these things but there seems to be a great degree of interest in you know food and its provenance at the moment there's a big sort of you know vegan thing going on amongst amongst the young people uh which i'm not i'm not advocating for ve- veganism in and of itself but it is asking you know it's it's asking the question of where does my food come from what effect does it have on you know the on the environment, what effect does it have on animal welfare? So you know it, I, you know it's it's more the answer to you know uh, you know is veganism helpful? Is uh, another podcast in itself, but just the fact that you know, people are asking that question and making decisions about their food as an ethical choice rather than what do I want to eat?
0: But because- I would argue. I would argue that they probably are still not saying I don't seem I don't see the same level of interaction in the question of who has grown my food as I do who has made my dresses. So working in like migrant labour, working in the area of labour exploitation, forced labour trafficking, those that kind of broad broad sector. increasingly we've seen consumer power being levied in the fashion industry Mm, and people starting to join the dots between what they're buying and like you say provenance and the provenance part of that question being who's made it where did they come from what were their conditions i'm not sure i see that we see it in maybe a couple of different sectors but i mm-hmm. think it's pretty sector specific i don't think people are looking at their food and thinking about who has made it or who has picked
1: it no yet. so no, maybe I mean,
0: bringing that labor conversation into yeah. the food sector Maybe that's partly how it starts to, I mean, it it doesn't do much to diminish the argument that farm labour is very hard, but it does kind of help to just, I suppose, strengthen the argument that the the predominant farming structure is unsustainable and based on exploitative labour and so on. So that you can start to see, you know, increase that advocacy towards the alternate and Mm, and, mm. and the system where labour is fair and, and work is decent and so on.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, you know, the fair trade label has been around for years, but that's always been associated with imported foods. And not saying there's anything wrong with that. And I couldn't even necessarily speak to how effective the fair trade um, scheme has been, but it has been that you can you can sell bananas, chocolate, coffee, uh, tea, and other commodities under a fair trade label and justify paying more or justify charging more for it. I don't know what the numbers are in terms of how much more the, um, the farmer gets, but there is that concept of fair trade, but it always seems to be associated around imported produce, which I, I guess is based on the assumption that if it's grown in the UK or grown even in Europe, then therefore, you know the labor conditions must be okay. know because it's in it's in the western world and um you know we could we could provide plenty of evidence to show that that isn't the case but you know people don't necessarily you know it's another consumer choice that then people have to think oh oh so now i have to find out who you know who picked my cabbage or who grew my wheat or who you know made this ready meal it's like another but it's like yeah if you want to make ethical food choices and hopefully we all do then Yeah, you need to find out about these things. I think if consumers educate themselves from the base up in terms of seasonal food, local food, labor, you know, provenance sourcing, then they can make those choices based, almost put it through that filter, put it through a filter of uh, food sovereignty or put it through the filter of agroecology. Does it, you know, does it tick enough of the boxes for me to think that this is a good purchase rather than that? I think, you know, I think it can become a habit to suggest that people can't manage to think about those things. I think it's a little bit um, insulting to people's intelligence. Mm
0: -hmm. There are various organisations that now work specifically to provide all of this information so you Mm. kind of don't have to. Um, Oxfam have various... Uh, programs they have behind the barcode and then mm. there's labor behind the label is the oh, okay. is certainly a fashion one but may also be in the farming industry because I was just thinking you referenced the Spanish tomato uh, industry earlier on but I know the Italian tomato industry and specifically for tin tomatoes is um, a huge site of labor exploitation and has mm. been written about in quite broad terms in terms of kind of the mafia's control over forced labor yeah. in the tom- and that's you know that's just the tin yeah. tomatoes that's going in your everyday pasta mm, <laughs>
1: Every <I know>. day. <laughs> yes yes exactly um so and of course there is going to be a large element of those industries not wanting to have that exposed because you know it doesn't it doesn't look great does it so there's going to be a sort of pushback against that and then even if people do find out about you know the, the horrors of the Italian tomato industry um then what what do they have instead what do they use instead you know is there an alternative a viable alternative um to that uh so yeah I think there's all kinds of opportunities for people to you know to come into farming to I say exploit those niches, exploits the wrong word, but to, you know, to fill those gaps where at the moment people find it really difficult to make good choices or to access good food that's not um, you know, out of their price range or is so complicated to get hold of that they they give up sort of thing. Um, but it is building on that consumer awareness and and you know caring about these things. I think people do care about these things, but it sort of feels like, oh well, I don't know what I can do. And does it make any difference? You know, it's just a drop in the ocean and it's kind of like, well,
0: of course it's just a drop in the ocean, but that's what the ocean is made of, isn't it? Lots and lots of drops. Exactly, Ruth. <laughs> and that's so truth. That's exactly what I was going to say. That yeah, I think there is this kind of overwhelming sense. It's like politics, you know, there's this overwhelming mm. sense that you can't do anything and you don't know where the entry points are and so you know is it even worth it you know engaging at all but um but yeah it's just little bits of engagement isn't it I Mm had a friend who was really struggling with the kind of pressure on her to cut out plastics but she has a young family and she was just you know she found the whole kind of the whole idea of it really overwhelming in terms of what it would mean to really just throw away everything that's Mm, plastic. mm. And then somebody just said to her, just change like a couple of things, just identify two things in your shopping that you Mm, can change mm. and go from there. And I think that, you know, you can kind of do that with this. You can just go, well, maybe Italian tomatoes will be my one thing. Maybe that is the thing that I work out what the alternative is or I stop buying them and I work out an alternative recipe or maybe I pick another thing and, you know, we are in, I suppose, yeah. a very, um, you know, luxurious space where we're able to do that. But, but those are all the drops, aren't they? And mm. then as you mm. are kind of slowly educating yourself, then maybe you make more and more choices. Maybe you talk about them, but it certainly isn't a, um. there isn't perfection. And I think there no. is a, it's often talked about in the you know this entire sector of social crime Mm. justice is talked about in absolutes and perfection and I think it can make it almost impossible for people to engage in or feel like it's a comfortable space to say I'm trying but I'm not really doing that well and I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere and actually Mm. that's 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 everything that can be hoped for is just trying
1: exactly well I mean it's sort of there's two sides to that isn't there there's the fact that you're trying and you're discovering how difficult it is to be, you know, even say we set a bar of I want to be 80 percent not perfect, but I want to do 80 percent of my life in a what feels like a environmentally benign way. How difficult is that? Um, and then rather than going, oh, well, you know, I'm obviously not up to this job of being perfect or even 80 percent perfect, so I'm going to give up. It's like, well, what's that telling you about the way things are set up? present moment that it's so difficult to even approach you know being 50 percent better than you are at the moment whatever your baseline is um and then you know and and you know so it's partly yes i'm going to try as a consumer to be better but it's also it's so ridiculously difficult in some areas it's easier now in 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 certain aspects but why is it so difficult you know with supposedly intelligent clever resourceful inventive people why have why have we got why are we still running a system that makes it so difficult to do the right thing the, the right the right choice you know the benign choice should be the easier choice not the not the more difficult more expensive choice which it isn't always but you know it it feels like that sometimes
0: anywhere that you like I know the Land Workers Alliance obviously they're looking they're always advocating for kind of moving towards agroecology which deals with all of these things so kind Mm. of localizing food localizing labor um, reducing carbon but also potentially actually like you say reversing the system what would you say to people who are listening who want to engage in some way outside of this podcast. Is there advocacy they can engage with with Land Workers Alliance? Is there other organizations?
1: Well they can certainly join us, join us as, as a supporter member if they're not, if they're not actively um, farming and working, they can certainly become a member of um, a supporter member of the Land Workers Alliance and definitely take part in campaigns. And um, we had a um, a pumpkin um, the pumpkin action just before the last um agriculture bill went through Save Our Standards. So I don't know if you saw the pictures on um Westminster Green of all the you know flaming pumpkins spelling out SOS. Uh yeah, so we do lots of actions and um and campaigning and we're you know we're really we I mean I've been holding this um, uh, membership support system now we have a have a paid person who does membership support but one of the things that, <clears throat> that we're also doing is collating all the talents of the people who are members um you know so in all, all kinds of you know different different talents that people may have that they can feed into feed into the organization because we've got loads of very sort of passionate interested people but um we need to we need to really mobilise that, so get our message out further and further.
0: I suppose there's also just, um, there's also just supporting through purchase decisions, right? Oh, Um, for sure, definitely, yeah. Which is easier, I suppose, you know, maybe easier said than done, so for, for me in East Devon, I think I think you were, your leaflet was maybe attached to the house sale details <laughs> but certainly <laughs> yes you were tied in with the tied into <laughs> it became very it. yeah I was I was made aware of you very quickly so the, mm-hmm. whatever the grapevine around here that you know and yeah. there are alternatives yeah. I've heard to fresh exactly. and green it's sort
1: of like yeah and if you buy their veg you know their veggies are right but they also have some really cracking parties so it's probably worth
0: exactly and she's she's got her yoga but I, I yoga mean it, too. having not lived in a British city for a while mm. um well I lived in Bristol and it felt like there again it felt like a, Bristol always feels like a semi-rural space anyway so it didn't feel like a million miles to get mm,
1: it's all that slightly sort of alternative um going against the grain kind of edge as well hasn't it um but in London,
0: yeah. in Birmingham, in in Manchester, are you aware of there being um, these kind of smaller, mid, more local, mm-hmm. more agroecological options yeah. that people can access?
1: There are, there are, yes, um, around London, around Sheffield, even around Plymouth. Um, I wouldn't say that every single city has one, but most cities will have um, one or two. Um, yeah, farms quite close by which are selling, who are selling direct to, to the population. I mean, obviously we need far more. We need to clear all those tin boxes from around the peripheries of cities. I'm not quite sure what goes on in there, but I believe people go and buy things that it turns out they don't need. Um, but so yeah, just like, you know, we could shift some of those off because that's where, you know, very often cities are, are situated where there was good growing land. You know, that was part of why, why are we going to build a city here? Okay, we've got a river and we've got, um, you know, maybe some other resources. But where we we also need to grow some food because, um, you know, people who are going to live in the city need to eat. So, you know, it's very often very fertile land around cities. You know, some of it's been built on it, built on, but not all of it. This is where we should have this sort of ring of market gardens. Uh, Selling direct into the city, and that should just like be a normal way of making a living, you know, so you don't necessarily have to come out and live in the sticks to be a farmer, you could live in the city and go out once or twice a week to um, work on a farm there. It's this whole kind of division between country and rural and, you know, food producers and food uh, consumers as if never the twain shall meet.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, I was just I was just thinking about the, the box team. So um, no doubt you've come across the Growing Communities Initiative, and that's yeah. uh, a london base. They have a London base of the growing communities, Hackney growing communities, and that's yeah. very much on the basis that you were just describing. So they have lots of different market gardens that uh, may include gardening on estates and on parkland and so on. And from that, they mm. bring all of the growing together and sell through box schemes. And so that's that's kind of all over London. There's also box schemes yeah. in Enfield. I've just seen, actually, that if you look on the Soil Association website, they have a map of um, direct right. sales and box schemes nationwide. So you can kind of drill down into your area and find who is doing local growing and who is doing direct sales and things like that so in addition to the markets you could maybe start accessing because that's also a good way of understanding what your grower needs in order to grow you know like you say maybe even connecting Mm. labor to your grower so if you for example needed additional labor you have this kind of body of people who buys who consumes that may know somebody or may have a child and you know a student yeah. in their in their yeah. kind of family who might be looking for work or, or somebody else who's looking for casual labor yeah so you can also for sure build, definitely build that labor um you know supply into the system that is also part of the kind of food growing and food supply so just maybe yeah it's about and investing. that's
1: where you know where the internet
0: ironically your internet failed just as you said
1: that country broadband's hand-cranked country (laughs) broadband the the internet is a thing of wonder and marvel when it comes to local you know local selling local sourcing you know um local connectivity it's been you know with yeah connecting up small farms so you know we can just chat to each other across the country about you know which is the best way to skin a polytunnel or who's got this or that seed and, you know, sympathizing and grumbling about all kinds of things, you know, like, like anybody does. So, yeah, that's been, that's been amazing. And I mean, that's what sort of turned around when COVID first hit and a lot of smaller growers who were at the time selling into um, restaurants and that sort of thing. Uh, And obviously that business just disappeared overnight and, but you know, the vegetables are still there. And you know, within weeks they managed to turn things around and then suddenly they were running a local veg box scheme and that would have been so difficult to do without, you know, without internet connection and without, you know, Facebook pages and all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that's that's been great really and hopefully because we haven't really had such a great culture of farmers cooperating in this country, partly because, you know, like the numbers show there's so few of us But there's something also, there's some seems to be something in that culture of farmers in this country that we're just a little bit more insular and less willing to cooperate. Hopefully, um, we can get over that a bit. Um, yeah, and actually, because it is the classic divide and rule thing, you know, if you've got big big buyers, big supermarkets going around and they're all kind of playing one grower or one milk provider or whatever against another, you know, who who wins in that situation if we don't have sort of solidarity with each other, with other food growers. And then of course there's the solidarity of the consumer for, you know, their regional farmers or farmers that they want to support because of the way they're growing or producing. So yeah we you know we all need to become a bit less passive as farmers we need to become a bit less passive as consumers of just like oh well this is what what we're offered and that's what we have to take Mm. we're all individually going oh well i have no choice then of course you don't but if you kind of do get together in organizations like the land workers alliance or consumer organizations or what have you then suddenly it's like oh yeah all these other people a thinking like I think, it's not just I'm some strange person um, who thinks that good food is important. So, um, yeah, I think there is, there's plenty of hope, as well as, you know, with the current, you know, a certain amount of despair right at the moment, I think, you know, we could, we could come out of this better off, concentrated, we don't, if we pay attention
0: yeah if we don't get to um if we don't if we don't kind of lose our motivation in the ever enduring lockdowns then Mm. i think you're right because i mean that was part of the 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 energy that came out of the the initial lockdown again for for build back better and what can this do for us you know re re reimagining how we can maybe take the the lifestyle that we were living in that space and take it forward and you you see the the thing is that you see the big businesses are not resting on their laurels they're not going yeah. back to to the business as usual they, Big businesses are going. Hey, we have saved x amount of money because all of our people work at home and we don't have to pay office spaces anymore. Mm. In fact, half the time we don't even have to buy their computers because they haven't noticed that they're <laughs> using their own. <laughs> we're just going to. Are you tell talking them... from your own point of view here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we're just gonna we're just gonna let them stay at home. That works. For yeah, us. You know, they're not. They're continuously thinking. How is this gonna? You know, how can we? you know, make the most of this for our own purposes and, you know, Absolutely. And, and, why not? and we were doing the same, we being kind of, I suppose, the extended community of people engaged in social and climate justice, I think we're thinking the same thing and I think it's important to not, you know, lose the momentum and lo- lose the will, <laughs> lose um, the will, you yeah. the will to hope and to try um, and
1: on this day of Biden and and Harris's inauguration, yeah, that is hopeful, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. A it's bit not of- going back to normal. It's going going forward to something better, because normal yeah. was wasn't brilliant for an awful lot of people. Yeah, I mean yeah. even just personally myself, um, you know, obviously I've got quite a sort of nice speechy situation going on here, or you know, looks looks pretty much like that from the outside but you know even i was realized just how much i was rushing around and exhausting myself and then you know there'd be times when i was thinking oh, i don't want to do this anymore it's all too much hard work and it's just like well because you're just working too hard yeah <laughs> and i'm yes. sure lots yeah. of other people have realized that as well and yes you know yeah. endless productivity or rushing about and heat and light and noise just because oh look how incredibly busy i am it's not necessarily um you know what what we need to be doing
0: right and we can hold on to exactly we can hold on to those hold on to those lessons and that's the thing you know you're talking about these you know farmers growers or processors or restaurants that all shifted the way that they were working in a way that is actually going to influence the way they work going forward there were you know change people change their behavior in terms of their um kind of green credentials on a on a home basis obviously they changed in terms of how much they were driving how much what they were, you know commuting things like that those things Mm. you know we can hold on to all of those changes right those changes that were actually quite individual that can end up being quite a structural change can end up being quite macro Mm. but ultimately we're all individually made Um, yeah and it it just proves how
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And from sort of like looking at it from a, you know, climate change point of view and all the other things that we need to do, you know, there was been this sort of like psychological drag of, oh, well, you can't expect people just to give up doing dot, 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 or expect them to start doing X, Y, or Z. It's like, you know, that's unreasonable. And it's like, oh, look, we did just do some massive changes. And uh, that kind of happened overnight. And it's more about our will, uh, will to do it than it is, is it possible? We've got the technology to do pretty much everything better. And, and that technology that we don't have, we're incredibly clever monkeys, if not very wise. It wouldn't really take us very long to work out far better ways of doing all of this stuff. Um, Absolutely. But it's, it's more, <laughs> more about vested interests and who, who profits who wants things to stay the same because they benefit from them staying the same
0: And you we want to suffer. And our message, I suppose our message of hope is that what we were able to see through this pandemic is that individuals can make those structural changes. It doesn't just need to be those people who have an investment in power structures and mm. so we say continue using your individual power for consuming for organizing for advocacy towards a more sustainable food and farming system For the people and for the planet Ruth <laughs> exactly
1: for all of it <laughs> yeah no totally and and for and for tasty dinners as
0: well you know? oh let's not forget yes. tasty dinners thank you for listening to Licking the Whisk If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to contact us through Instagram at LickingTheWhisk or email us at LickingTheWhiskPodcast at gmail.com.